0: in this episode of the healthcare huddle we dive into the world of medical marijuana and our guide is sarah Pressler, who is general counsel for the mojave cannabis company and is instrumental in writing some of the legislation uh, concerning medical marijuana i think what makes this episode a little bit different is i take us into the weeds a bit Uh, intentionally and there's a lot of information so it's a meaty episode but Sarah's perspective being the boots on the ground and working day in and day out with patients with legislation uh, seeing the community impact seeing the dysfunction between states and sometimes between cities and towns and trying to get a unified set of rules is really interesting. And it's certainly different than what we're fed um, through our normal news feeds. So tune in uh, and uh, listen as Sarah kind of gives you a behind the scenes look at how medical marijuana is and isn't working in the country. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit encompassmedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zervis. I'm very happy to have our guest, Sarah Pressler, join the show today. Sarah is one of my favorite people in the whole world. She's wicked smart, highly passionate, and she cares about people and her community. That's a nice trifecta, right? So Sarah, previous to her current role, was the mayor of Flagstaff, but now, and I would argue more importantly, (laughs) works as a consultant general counsel for the Mojave Cannabis Company. She is a leading voice in cannabis ethics and is helping to write legislation surrounding this movement. So now maybe, Sarah, you're the mayor of marijuana, and in either case, welcome, my friend.
1: Thanks for having me. I think that's perfectly fitting that I am now the marijuana mayor. (laughs) It's good to be with you, Michael. It's been a while since we've been connected from our Flagstaff days, but I would argue that this might be even cooler than being the first female mayor of Flagstaff. working in marijuana is just this total pioneer, new frontier experience. And it's a lot of fun, but it's also a ton of work.
0: Well, let's talk about that. That's a good place to start. So maybe for me and our listeners, you could kind of give us an outline or sketch out this ecosystem. What does the industry look like? Where is legislation heading? What about adoption research? Just try to help set the stage for our listeners, and then maybe we can delve down into some of the issues and and talk a little bit more in detail.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Let's talk about all things cannabis. And (laughs) I think it's important that we start with the premise that we're talking about legal cannabis, right? Because most of the tax code has been drafted around this main idea of illegal or illicit activity and the fact that it's illegal on a federal level. So we've got a tax code that's written around an illicit illegal market, and then we have an operational business and activities that are happening on a state-based legal market. So what does that mean, right? That means that cannabis law and the business of cannabis is different in one state than it is in the next state. So imagine... If the rules for your podcast and for your healthcare businesses and all the amazing things you've done were different in Arizona than they were in California, than they were in Ohio, than they were in Massachusetts, and you couldn't even bring your product from one location state to the next location. So everything that happens in cannabis law and cannabis business happens in the confines of that state, and yet we're subject to... All of these provisions and parameters around federal illegality, including a tax code that was designed to be punitive instead of promoting a pro-business view. So it's a really kind of funky combination of law and business where it's federally not yet legal and we don't have safe banking, for example, and the tax code is written around like old school cocaine cases And yet on the state level, it's entirely legal. State agencies are regulating it. We have legitimate businesses with lots of employees paying lots of taxes for the activities that we're doing. And so we're living in these two different worlds. And that's where I say like it's a lot of fun because I love these sort of brain gymnastics, but it's also a ton
0: of work. So you hit on something that I wanted to talk about. So I'm just going to jump right into that with no necessary pattern to this. We'll just let the conversation unfold as it does. But I've encountered in working with some clients who've come to my current organization who are involved in the cannabis industry and wanted our help, but we're really struggling to get banking relationships. And so does that problem, you mentioned it in that conversation, is that still a problem and how is that overcome if it is?
1: Yeah, it's totally still a problem. Let me give you an example. I own a cannabis business in the state of Ohio. I have legitimate transparent banking at a state-based credit union in the state of Ohio. I have assets and resources at that state-based credit union. The state of Arizona is going through a licensing process whereby they're requiring me to demonstrate that I have a certain amount of capital that's liquid in my own name in order to even turn in an application to win a license in the state of Arizona that state-based credit union in the state of Ohio won't sign the proof of funds form for another state's licensing process. So what this means is this, just like cannabis law and business is the state-by-state dynamic, so is banking. What we're finding is they are state-based credit unions or state-based private chartered banks that are working in this cannabis space. And so there are very limited options for cannabis banking. You can't just walk into like J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo and be like, hey, I'd like to run $10 million through this account and pay my taxes, like that's totally not permissible. And the reason why is because these global and also national banks are tied in in such intricate detail to federal law and they're regulated in a totally different environment than the one we operate in. And so because of that challenge, it presents to this day, continuing challenges in cannabis banking. Uh, To this morning, I woke up at 7 a.m. trying to coordinate like blue line cash truck pickups in rural Arizona, because the blue line company has to travel, you know, that big armored truck. They have to travel three, four hours to go do these cash pickups across the Mojave Desert in order to bring cash back to a state based private bank that's chartered you know in, in a state level it's just this really goofy setup and not everybody has banking you know these bank accounts are limited because the banks have to be able to balance the amount of deposits versus you know credits and other things that they have on their books so it's not just like come one come all and bank here There are limits to the amount of accounts, the amount of funds, and it's not free to bank. The minimum charges for these accounts start anywhere from $1,000 a month, and they go just upward and take a percent of cash deposits from there. So there's no such thing as free banking, and there's no such thing as easy banking in the cannabis industry.
0: Yet the same national, international, multinational banks find a way to be able to take cartel money to make bad loans on buildings, and it's really interesting to me. But what I'm hearing you is it's not necessarily the bank's choice. It's they're bound by this illegality, right? So Yeah,
1: they've got these federal charters. They have their own illegality rules related to lending. And if they're taking money, for example, with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? We're tying into federal programs and federal laws.
0: And this is illegal.
1: Yeah. And so I think what is important as a takeaway here is that until we have safe banking on a national level, we're going to continue to see the challenges that are taking what's a totally legitimate industry that is absolutely legal on a state level and continuing to foster an environment of illegitimacy. And so banking is really that barrier between legitimate and illegitimate right it's sort of like if you can run all your transactions through banking you're able to see then electronically all of your debits and credits but what happens if all of this becomes cash and i have to reconcile that to an atm located inside of a business there are very few businesses that are forced to really operate in this cash only environment and it's not safe for employees it's not safe for our patients and consumers and it certainly isn't safe for the general public if you want these businesses to pay their taxes faster. If you want these employees to be able to have an opportunity to personally bank, to be able to get home loans, to be able to get car loans, this is a huge economic multiplier to allow for safe banking in this industry.
0: So I have a thesis and I want to maybe build my way towards it. I'll give you a hint. I want to try to understand how are all these forces conspiring against this thing that seems to have a supermajority of Americans agreeing it should be legalized. A lot of medical efficacy that's being proved about its ability to impact patients positively with less side effects. And so one of the arguments I think that comes up against this resistance to this despite those positives, is that maybe there's risk associated with it. And there's either externalities or societal externalities or patient outcomes that we're either not aware of or we're not talking about. So maybe help me understand what the arguments are against it, if there are any from that perspective. And I want to talk through that a little bit because the data that I've seen, I'm not sure that those arguments are valid or truly exist, but let's talk about it.
1: I think in order to really understand where some of the challenges are in the industry, we have to first understand how these businesses operate in the first place. They are operating, as we've talked about, on a state-by-state basis, but not every state is the same. So there's these two different ways that licensing happens. So Michael, the first way is top-down, meaning it's a state-based licensing environment where there's generally a limited amount of licenses. Arizona is a good example of that. The state issues the license for a particular region, county, community health analysis area to a particular licensee. Then that licensee works with the local community, city of Yuma, city of Flagstaff, city of Phoenix, to obtain zoning permissions to operate in that jurisdiction. The other way that cannabis licensing works is, for example, in the state of California, local community bottom up to the state. Hmm. In this licensing environment, the city of Needles, the city of Los Angeles, the city of San Diego licenses a certain number and type of cannabis license. And then from there, the applicant works in the local community, obtains all the local permissions and controls. Meanwhile, the next city over could have licensed 42 of these things. And then you apply up, 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 up into the state agencies for state ultimate approval. There are pros and cons of both systems. I prefer working in the industry full-time for the last five years to work in an environment that is a top-down, state-based licensing. Why? Because there's generally a single set of rules. We all know what those rules are. We have a limited number of licenses so we don't flood the market with like a Starbucks on every corner, (laughs) quote-unquote. And we're able to have a more controlled and organized environment for a highly regulated industry. If you think about it, why wouldn't a government want to manage from its top government system down something that's so highly regulated? And so when you see the two different ways that states are operating, you can start to understand that we now have this patchwork across America for licensing. And that's created a series of challenges because the entire way that the industry is structured is different from community to community and from state to state. And when we understand that, we can then begin to understand where some of these other challenges for operating the business can come from.
2: Encompass aims to put the provider back in control of the healthcare equation. The payer enrollment and provider privileging service takes advantage of long relationships with both private and government payers to help reduce the cost of avoidable denials. The largest denial class is a payer-identified credentialing error. Encompass's team focuses exclusively on satisfying the reattestation needs, maintenance of expirables, and complete taxonomy accuracy for your providers to help capture all that is due to you from each payer. Some of our current clients have seen their provider revenues increase by up to $50,000 a year by having the Encompass Payer Enrollment and Privileging Team focus on management of the intentionally complex and cumbersome payer enrollment process. Contact us today to learn more about Encompass's Payer Enrollment and Privileging process and how we can help improve your revenue capture through strategic and focused payer enrollment management. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Credentialing and Payer Enrollment, and click the Learn More button to schedule a discovery call.
0: So when you're describing a California, that seems to me to be a microcosm of the same problem we have on a national level where it's different from state to state, right? And the attendant friction and drag that creates in running a business efficiently and regulating it appropriately, that's happening in California and and each city is representing uh, each state for that same kind of Free for all, for lack of a better term, but is that lack of coordinated structure what creates this resistance to what is stopping people from what? What I'm 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 unclear. It's like people, most people want to legalize it. Many states are legalizing it. So why is it that we? Where's the resistance coming from?
1: Yeah, let's connect those dots. Then, so we just talked about the structure and how these licenses and these businesses have the legal right to operate. So for example, in Arizona, we just had a vote called Proposition 207. And that proposition was a voter initiative that legalized marijuana sales and regulated the industry in the state of Arizona. The voters in Arizona overwhelmingly supported and ultimately voted for this particular law change. So as I'm traipsing around the state of Arizona, communicating with local governments around property zoning and land use, because property zoning and land use go hand in hand with the um, operationalization of a cannabis license, I am hearing firsthand from local elected officials, whether they are supportive or not supportive of having a cannabis business in their community that might be issued from the state of Arizona based on what that voter turnout was for that particular community on Proposition 207. Now, flip that over on the California side. If you have each town and city and community voting separately on these topics, you're creating an immediate patchwork that from this square mile to this square mile, we're all cool with it. But as soon as you get to this square mile in this town, We're not so cool with it, right? And so you're creating or we're creating with a a lack of a federal system, a real patchwork of approval or disapproval. One of the other things that I'm seeing is, and I can say this having been an elected official, you know, I did not understand cannabis law when I was the mayor of Flagstaff. When I was sitting on that dais and I was running those meetings with the city council, making decisions for our community, and the original medical marijuana laws came up in Arizona, I held this opinion that marijuana belonged like on the outskirts, right? Put it in the industrial zones, throw it over there where we don't have to see it, right? Not in my backyard. And now that I'm working in the industry and I understand who the patients are and the consumers, they need protected more than anybody. And so making sure that these businesses can operate in the light of day, that they have easy access to parking, that when grandma heads out, she's not in an unsafe or uncomfortable environment to purchase cannabis from a legitimate business. These are important things to protect everybody in the community. And so the things I know now, having operated in the industry versus the things that I knew then as an elected official... Are totally different. Yet at that time, I held these real biased beliefs, even though the people of Flagstaff had voted to support medical marijuana in the state of Arizona. But somehow I had developed some independent, self righteous view that I must know better about where the right zoning was for these things and what the right result would be to protect everybody in our community, right? Because you don't just support the people who voted for it, you support the people who didn't vote for it, and you're trying to find some mealy compromise. That's super messy, Michael, because ultimately, what I did there is I imposed my own ideas and beliefs against something that ultimately the voters supported. And here I am now, eight, nine years later, (laughs) 10 years later, I'm experiencing this on the other side now, still in Arizona. Now I work full time in the industry, but I'm still encountering elected officials, city attorneys, city managers, even though the voters have overwhelmingly supported it in a particular community, some of them are like, mm, not in my backyard, no thanks, right? There's this political issue around the elected official that knows better or yeah. is just sort of paternalistic or maternalistic in their approach. Boy, that is so wrong. And I think that that's a real barrier here.
0: So is that a function of, is that an education component or is that because- a preponderance of the elected officials are maybe closer to my age range and have a, <laughs> I'm, I'm being honest, you know? I am that- too.
1: I'm laughing, honestly. I think it, I think that's what it is, man. I really do. You know, but I, that's easy for me to say now. I mean, I was 28 years old when I got elected mayor. Yeah. And I still held these conservative ideas around what should be and shouldn't be permitted in a local zoning perspective. But I do think the majority of the folks we're interacting with are more senior and more conservative. They come from the Nancy Reagan, just say no days.
2: Yeah, that's what I I was wondering.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's this idea that like drugs are bad and I'm smarter than you, right? And I'm here to protect you instead of following the will and, and drive of the people. There is another side of it though, Mike, which is- Tell me. Yeah. So testing is pretty new to this industry. And, you know, in pharmaceutical manufacturing, as you know from your healthcare background, drugs go through a significant amount of work generally, you know, sans vaccine today. But they generally go through a ton of testing for years until they can show up ultimately at market, right? Right. And so... That's not true about this industry. So this industry is living a lot of the time in this medical market environment as it's rolling out in a particular state before it transitions to this rec market. And yet the products that we're creating and the items that we're selling and manufacturing and producing and putting in little vape pens and packaging in little drams and jars and such, they don't have to go through that same pre-rigorous testing. And until this past year, for example, testing wasn't even required prior to sale in Arizona, meaning we hung out for like eight years in a legal market where testing wasn't even necessary before we sold products. Now now we tested things prior to sale, but on what standard? Ones that we created, right? And then you contrast that in California, where testing is absolutely mandatory prior to sale, right? And so every state has its own approach around testing, the standards for testing, permissible levels, remediation. I would suggest to you, though, that people's hesitation around cannabis, in my experience, isn't because we have problems or deficiencies or delays in testing. Most of the hesitation that I experience working in this industry really does stem from the taboo culture that, like, Cannabis is bad. Drugs are bad. It doesn't really come from this idea around like, well, we just don't know the science isn't there yet. That tends to be the public defense. But I've had test results available now for months and maybe like one person out of 200 a day asks to see them. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's not like you know people aren't driving to us demanding test results or anything.
0: So let's talk about that for a second because this idea that drugs are bad but the reality is that you know all we have to do is look at the opioid crisis. All we have to do is look at the trend line related to big pharma's anxiety and depression medication. You only have to turn on the TV to see the latest new condition that they've created a drug for. And so on one level, it's clear that drugs to our society aren't bad. So It begs the question, why is this drug, quote unquote, bad? And is it really about the science or is it really about the money? And do people see marijuana as a threat to siphoning dollars away from what people currently spend money on, whether it's legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate big pharma tools and resources? So, how much does that play in it? Because everything you just said argues for. This top down regulation, right? It says that, hey, we can impose testing, we can collect dollars. If money's running through bank accounts, we can see dollars. That's better for us to collect dollars, right? That makes it harder. It's safer. It's everything you just said argues for that. Yet on a federal level, it's still illegal. So my small brain goes, huh, how come?
1: Right. I think these are excellent points because I come from this background, Mike, where I believe that everything is political. And we don't like to say that, right? People say, I don't want to talk about politics. This isn't political. But you drive down the road, that's related to politics. You turn on your water, it's politics, right? All of the things that happen in our everyday life, 100% come back to politics. And so I do believe that the lobbying and investment that's anti-cannabis is absolutely rooted in big pharma, absolutely rooted in the big money that's connected to big pharma and traditional medical routes. We saw that major donors to the anti-campaigns come from pharmaceutical companies. Let me give you a little bit of my personal background, maybe, Mike, and I can, I, I know we've known each other like as you know professionals, but maybe I can tell you a little bit about like where I actually grew up and maybe the company I work for and it'll help you understand why I think we are the opposite of an opioid company. Sure. So when I was in the ninth grade, my mom, who had stayed at home or worked like side jobs teaching community college, decided that she really wanted to venture out and kind of do her own career thing. So she had convinced my dad that she was gonna move to Mojave County, Arizona. So she took a teaching job up there and we went up there to Mojave County from Tucson. Now That was a huge shift for me right? Came from this kind of larger urban city to this very rural middle of nowhere spot where Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada all touch, boom. And the Colorado River flows like really beautifully through it. But there's extreme poverty and a heck of a lot of drug abuse and opioid abuse in that community. My mom ran a high school for kids who dropped out or were on the verge of dropping out. And I did everything I could to get a scholarship, to be able to go to college, to leave Mojave and never come back, right? And so I did just that, Mike. I got a college scholarship. I got a bachelor's degree. From there, I got another scholarship. I got a law degree. And I was out in the yonder, living in the nice city of Flagstaff and practicing law, working in politics with big dreams of things bigger and better than even that. And I ran into, boom, a buddy of mine from high school. And this guy is an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, the kid would wear a jacket in Mojave County in the summer with candy bars inside. And he'd come out on the school ground and he'd open up his jacket and he'd be like, a dollar for a candy bar, right? And you know this guy bought him for like a quarter at the corner store. So even at a young age, he's like hawking candy bars out on the school grounds. So I run into this guy. His name's Curtis Devine. And he's like, what are you doing? I said, oh, just practicing law, doing yoga, you know, all the super sort of bougie things. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm running this marijuana business back home. I'm like, well, good for you. <laughs> he's like, Sarah, you got to come home and see what we're doing. I'm like, I don't know. I, thanks, but no thanks, you know. But he's persistent, right? He's persistent. So he convinces me to go back home to Mojave County and check out what's going on. So I meet him back at home, and I hadn't been back, but for like a homecoming game, Mike, you know? Like, who goes back to their high school hometown to like explore a career opportunity? Very few people, unless, you know, your entire family is there, which mine wasn't at that point, or, you know, you really have to go back to your hometown. Most people go home because they're starting over, or because grandma lives there, you know what I mean? So, I'm thinking to myself, no thanks. So I meet up with him there, and we go into his first cultivation facility. I walk in the door, Mike, and it's everybody I went to high school with. Like, I mean everybody. I want you to imagine everybody you went to high school with, all in one big warehouse, all wearing matching t-shirts, like 20 years later, right? And all growing marijuana. I'm like, this is amazing. And what was even more incredible about that moment is that the future for the people that I grew up with for my community was either working at a casino or just like getting by at a real small mom and pop business in that hometown. You know, when you're from a rural, low-income community, there's not a lot of places to go or to work, which is why most of us just leave. And yet all of these really bright, cool, smart, interesting people that I had gone to school with didn't have to like slum it over at a casino. They were in agriculture and sales and marketing and accounting, doing all of these interesting things, growing marijuana as a very robust wholesaler throughout the state of Arizona. That was super exciting to me. And as I eventually became part of the company and now have been there with my family and friends for the last five years, I've participated in lectures at local opioid addiction clinics where I meet with service providers, therapists, and people in recovery to teach them about how cannabis can help them transition off of opioids and back into a safe and healthy life. You know, Mojave County is at the heart in Arizona of the opioid epidemic and our dispensary in Bullhead City has so many former addicts who were addicted to opioids and their families and lives were destroyed. But through the use and responsible use of regulated legal cannabis, they've been able to transition away from things that have basically destroyed their life and their family. I have young children that are patients at our dispensary that are suffering from cancer or seizures and have found incredible relief. And we have adults who suffer from a variety of other conditions that are using cannabis to complement their current medical care. It's not an all for nothing or all or nothing, excuse me, environment. It can be complementary to a treatment plan. And so it wasn't until I had this real privilege, really, to go home and work with my friends and family that I could understand firsthand how going back to a depressed, low-income community and implementing a legal, transparent, engaged cannabis business could transform our hometown. We have over 100-plus employees now. We built a computer lab in the junior high. We rebuilt the baseball fields that we grew up playing on as kids. Those casinos, they give back, but they're not rebuilding our old ball fields down in Mojave Valley. Nobody's paying attention to kids from the valley like us. So the work we're able to do, not just in our community as a private family-owned business that's now helping people in our community is incredible, but we're also able to confront head-on and transparently this opioid epidemic that wreaked havoc on the people that we know and love. Some of them are current employees.
2: Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05%, a zero pay denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality health care to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's Revenue Cycle Management solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system, the same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and click Learn More to schedule your discovery call today.
0: So, as I listen to that and I see that it has, you know, there's therapeutic effects, there's these community effects. If you're lucky enough to be in a community that has a hub that's doing this work, right? And creating jobs and giving back to the town in which they reside. Talk to me a little bit then about, I don't see a ton of research that's out there in the world, that's easy to find. I find it, but I have to look for it. About- yeah, you know
1: why? Do you know why? No.
0: Yeah, that's because, what I was my question, yeah, yeah, tell yeah, me because why. You
1: know, here's why. Because that research is generally federally funded. And so a state institution that receives federal funding is gonna be told that if they start doing research on a cannabis activity, then they're going to put their other federal funding for all their research projects in jeopardy. There is one university, the University of Mississippi, that grows marijuana and tests it for that purpose. (laughs) And they have a very special exception with the federal government. There are some spin off studies that are happening at universities with veterans and PTSD, for example, in Arizona, but they are few and far between. What's happened here is the federal government is holding research institutions hostage with their other federal funds because of the illegality issue on the federal level, prohibiting free access to research and opportunities for federally funded or even privately funded research on the state and federally funded university campuses. So the only way then to have the research occur is through private funding somehow affiliated but far enough away from a reputable research institution. I mean, are you gonna trust research from like your mom's ABC School of Management? Or are you gonna trust research from Columbia? Well, Colombia is going to have a hell of a challenge because of all the federal loan money, the federal grant money, and the federal funding they receive. And so the system is set up to fail.
0: I would posit, though, that there is a concerted effort behind the scenes to maintain the status quo, certainly from institutions and organizations that are getting paid by big pharma or big tobacco, who see that marijuana is an actual, viable, efficacious, less harmful solution to some of the problems that they're attempting to solve.
1: That's one position. I think though that we're starting to see the cracks in that system. We're seeing very reputable professionals on a national and global scale join boards of directors for some of these larger cannabis companies, right? And we're seeing state laws begin to shift and adjust away from this idea that it's medical only. And so we're seeing recreational markets start to pop up around the country. And every day we're watching more and more industry connections happen, whether that's infused alcohol or Bath bombs that suddenly, you know, are a really reputable company that makes bath bombs is now aligning itself with a cannabis company. This is the part that's magical to me that I think is so missed. And really, Mike, I think I'm just ahead of my time, and most of us are. I think that there is a huge business opportunity, whether it's from pharmaceutical companies or other product based companies to align themselves in the cannabis industry. Now, most people argue that that's way ahead of its time, right? And because of banking prohibitions or federal illegality, it's not going to necessarily happen just yet. But why wouldn't Marlboro want to distribute not just Marlboro Reds, but Marlboro joints, right? I mean, why wouldn't they want a piece of this market? So I think it's just a matter of time and probably after my time that we'll see this start to unfold. But In my view, there is a massive business miss that's occurring from these giant pharmaceutical companies, from these giant tobacco companies, alcohol companies, that is a missed business opportunity because of the fear of the federal illegality boundary here. And so the real challenge is going to be, can we see congressional movement and- a change on a federal level. And as soon as we see that crack open, and I think it's going to start with banking, and then it'll crack open further from there. If we can find common ground on banking, boom, once you free up the money, man, you free up the business. And so I think that that is the first major step that we in the industry are just waiting for, and advocating for, because we know that it won't just help our businesses do better, but it's gonna help the public be safer. And ultimately it's going to promote more business rather than restrict business.
0: The reality though, is that the banking issue is still following the money. These corporations that we discuss Big Pharma, Big Tobacco, are giant and slow to move. And they're only going to move when they see that the opportunity dollar-wise, return on investment-wise, net operating income-wise, is greater on the other side of the fence than it is on this side of the fence. And so there's inherent organizational bias to stay the course. And once these organizations see that there's a bigger pot of money on the other side of the fence, partnering and finding these business opportunities that you mentioned, then they'll push their efforts towards finding partners, engaging. Then they'll start lobbying to release and ease these banking restrictions.
1: I think so, yeah, yeah.
0: And what seems abundantly clear to me is that this really is about an education that reduces long-held stereotypes, stigmas, and beliefs that many of us hold. You know, I think about our willingness as a society to take all sorts of different chemicals and substances to make us feel better or deal with the travails of modern life, and yet we still have this belief that something bad is going to happen with, you know, wacky tabacky, as it was called when I was growing up. And a lot of the burgeoning and nascent science around this is showing, in fact, just the opposite.
1: Yeah, 100%. And the more that people like you and me are talking about, and in my instance, actively working, involved in, and helping to draft this type of legislation and rules and modifications to rules, the more effective it will be at teaching and busting through those barriers of bias, right? Because the more that we watch everyday people that we respect and trust talking about something and understanding it, the less taboo it becomes. You know, I didn't tell people what I did for like a whole year. I was afraid I wasn't going to have banking. I was nervous that people were going to sort of disown me relationship-wise or professionally. And now, like I'm wearing the t-shirt, man. I'm smoking the joint. Like I am in it to win it because I believe in our product and more importantly, I'm not ashamed by it. Like I'm really proud of the work that we do, the people that we are, and the way that we're doing our work, right? The why behind it. And so that pride of ownership, that pride of purpose, that is something that I think will really help, not just the work we're doing here in Arizona, but across the country as more lawyers, more accountants, more business owners, more employees, are transparent and open around the kind of work that they do. And I think through that, by just talking about it, then we destigmatize it, right? It's like, this is totally legal and it's awesome. I mean, you and I are having this like super deep, intense business meets regulatory, meets political discussion. But the bottom line is like, our products are awesome, man. And they make you feel good. And there are not, I mean, you read stuff all the time in the news about people that like get drunk and like do terrible things to other people. I'm not like opening up the paper every day, like, oh, that guy smoked an indica joint and then he fell asleep and ate some candy. You know, it's just like, it's just, it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen when people consume cannabis. It's just a very different kind of effect for people. And I think that there's just so many complementary aspects to cannabis and life that what we're doing is awesome. Like, I'm not just making like weird plastic cups or something. Like, we're growing marijuana, man. And we're selling it legally to people that love it and want it and need it for whatever purpose, medical or just to have a good time. And that's awesome. I mean, it is so much fun to work in something that like, I genuinely love, you know, and it's pretty cool.
0: Well, I'm looking at the clock here and I've kept you for 40 minutes when I promised you it would be no longer than a half an hour, but there's so much to cover here and so much information. I'd love for you to come back a little bit later and maybe give us an update what's happening legislatively. But I also wanna let the listener know that Sarah's time is pretty valuable. She's got uh, triplets that are three years old and six month old. Yes. (laughs) So probably the most valuable thing you could be giving us Today is your time for sure. And I'm appreciative of it. And your really comprehensive knowledge about this issue in the industry itself has been very helpful. Maybe you could tell listeners how if they want to reach out to you or your company more directly, they could do that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, at Mojave Cannabis Co., it's not hard to find us. We are like good people, good weed, good times. So, you know, we're super hardworking people. And even if, you know, got triplets and a, and a new baby, we always have time for our friends and we're always, you know, hardworking and, and we never give up. So it's it's really nice to be with you today because I feel like I've had a chance to really share some of that with you. And, you know, we're a family company. I feel like our friendship is like family and it's just really nice to be able to, to talk about these things. So you can find me easy peasy by just going through the mojavecannabis.com website, send a little message over there. You can find me on Instagram. If you want to see tons of pictures of triplets at Sarah Pressler, just like Google me, man, you know, Sarah Pressler, you'll find me on LinkedIn. It's not that hard if you really want to find me. So, but I hope more importantly, you find our products because I think you'll have a good time with them. So you can look up Mojave Cannabis Co-Products in California and Arizona. And if you have any questions about those, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about them.
0: In my talk with Sarah, it got me to thinking about the thorny issue of marijuana legislation. It is clear that there is a groundswell of voter, legislative, and healthcare support for its use. In fact, here's some stats you might find surprising. More than half of U.S. adults, that's 128 million people, have tried marijuana despite it being a federal crime. In 1969, only 12% of the population supported legalizing marijuana. In 2020, that number has climbed to 68%, and that's according to Gallup. Marijuana is so ubiquitous in our culture that there are more than 1,000 words in a dictionary for it. Yet even with this strong push for legalization and supermajority acceptance, over 600,000 Americans are arrested annually for marijuana possession more than one person a minute. It's unclear to me in looking at the data what those crimes were. Personal, individual use possession seems different than committing a capital crime that's linked to your marijuana operation. And depending on how those numbers break out, that might change my view. But my guess is most of that is individual use and singular possession. And those numbers are eye-opening. Here's a few other figures that caught my attention. For every one dollar spent on the marijuana industry, between two and two and a half dollars in economic activity is generated. Legalization in Washington and Colorado have cost the Mexican drug cartels an estimated $2.7 billion in profits. A study from the Center for Disease Control found that past year marijuana use decreased by 17 percent in 2002 and in 2014 among U.S. kids ages 12 to 17. This corresponded with state legalization. And in Colorado, which was at the vanguard of this effort, Colorado teens between 12 and 17 years old reported a nearly 12% drop in marijuana use just two years after adult use was legalized. This is according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. So if there are demonstrable positive effects of legalization, widespread support, and legislation to curtail the expected externalities, why the continued costly effort to suppress its use? As i found many times in my life, I think it's about money. As Big Pharma continues to monopolize our healthcare ecosystem, I propose that they see marijuana as a significant threat to their revenue streams. Marijuana has known medical benefits, is significantly less expensive, and has less side effects, and cannot be patented. By definition, that will divert money from Big Pharma's products. And over the years, we have seen Big Pharma engage in all sorts of unethical and at times illegal chicanery in order to pump profits at the expense of the patient. So it's not too hard for me to imagine them trying to manipulate legislation to preserve their monopoly. Additionally, it's not clear to me that marijuana is a gateway drug to anything else. And if that is the argument, we need to take a hard look at all the drugs Big Pharma is peddling to us, as some of them I'm sure are gateway drugs to other harder and more deleterious substances. I have never been a big adherent to the slippery slope argument either. Writing laws today for some unknown potential future problem is misguided and a waste of time if and when that feared future scenario arises we can write laws at that time to specifically target the issue with limited policing resources i'm hard-pressed to argue that this is where we need to focus our energy i think we shouldn't common sense tells me that the reasoning behind laws that allow alcohol and cigarette sales should be applied here it'll be interesting to watch this journey of medical marijuana over the next three to five years i think we're in store for some giant changes You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit encompassmedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcast.